blame, success, failure, gain, loss, pleasure, pain. So four pairs of opposites, basically. One uh, polarity we like, we want, we like it when that comes to us, and one, one uh, polarity we don't like. He said, and it's uh, without question our experience, whoever you are, it's inevitable that, that you will encounter both sides of all, of all four pairs, whoever you are. The Buddha himself, Jesus, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, uh, whoever, and certainly any politicians, all of us, all of us, the nature of, of being, in a way, is that life presents us with these opposites. It's inevitable. How much do we wobble when there's that movement between praise and blame and rest? How much do we wobble inside? How much do we keel over? How much is our state of mind dependent on where, uh, where things stand with those polarities? Just to reflect on that, how central uh, just those four pairs are to our sense of well-being and okayness. So it's very important to say also that uh, when we hear about sacred power, the reason that's almost like a bit unattractive to us was is that uh, it can sound a bit like a sort of disconnection or not caring. So there's something called the near enemy of equanimity, which is a quality that looks uh, and may, it looks like uh, equanimity, but it's actually not. The near enemy is indifference. Sometimes we can mistake a state of indifference for true equanimity. The difference is that uh, with equanimity, the heart is still open. The heart is still open. It's not a state of disconnection. We're not shut down. We're not uh, cold, removed. Equanimity is not a dull state or a kind of grayness. Everything's just gray. The colors have gone out of line. So this is this is quite interesting. Sometimes also the reason we are not so attracted to the idea of equanimity is that we have come to feel and believe that our sense of some juice in life, of juiciness, is wrapped up in drama, in the drama of the self, the drama of getting or, or getting rid of some difficulty or this or that. And when that drama dies down a bit, we're a little bit unsure if what will remain it will be a bit grey or a bit boring. It's hard to imagine maybe uh, equanimity, true equanimity actually has quality of juiciness. So it's a very, it's something very alive, very alive. So steadiness with that quality of aliveness. Another word uh, might be something like spaciousness. There's the sense uh, of spaciousness in the being, in awareness around what is going on, whether it's uh, fantastic and exciting or whatever, whether it's difficult. That the being 
a state of steadiness in mind, and heart a state of spaciousness. <clears throat> Sometimes in life, often in life, we don't understand very well how states of mind come about. It can seem that we go through our day, go through our life, and states of mind sort of descend upon us out of the blue in a pretty random way. We're feeling okay, and then we're just miserable, or depressed, or some anger comes, or, or upset, or something, or just a sadness. It can seem all very random. Or it can seem as if our state of mind is completely event-based. Someone says, you're fantastic. And we feel great. Someone says, actually, you know, whatever. Some problem or other with our, ourselves. And what happens? Well, it's a success or failure, whatever it is. Part of the, the huge part of the Buddhist message was that our state of mind is not either random or solely event-based. That we can actually cultivate this quality of equanimity. We can really... Nourish it, nurture it. So that the path uh, has at least one half of the path is very active in terms of cultivating these kind of qualities, these states of mind, these qualities like equanimity. Very much active. And the other part we could say is just about letting things be, quite a passive sense of just presence, just allowing. Sometimes in our experience that we're, we're quite uh, tentative uh, about this active side of the path. We quite like the idea of maybe just being relaxing and allowing. But when we start talking about cultivating qualities, it can bring up a certain uneasiness with us. And it's very understandable. Oftentimes we come to spiritual practice because of, uh, in our lives, we feel the pain of striving, of ambition, of drivenness, of always trying to manipulate everything. So we come and we hear the teachings of just letting it be, just letting it be, just sitting with it, just 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 being with it. And it's a relief. But this this part of cultivation is a huge part of the path. So we have this fear of strife and ambition. Understandably, we trip up uh, so often we get entangled uh, in our own sort of measuring mind. Equanimity. <laughs> you know, and where are we on the on the pattern? You know, what do I score out of ten for equanimity today? Am I, am I moving forward? Am I moving backwards? Am I making progress? The whole measuring mind comes in. Actually, as far as I'm going to discuss, there is a way to measure. Uh, interestingly, so it says if you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. If you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you could fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment 
just where you are. You are probably a dog. <laughs> Yeah, 
quite necessary, not because we can't see you. I know that. I know that. Of course. We stop someone in the street and I say, yeah, yeah, sure. How, how deeply do we know it? I feel that we need to uh, perhaps very deliberately tune the attention in to that uh, fact, that existential fact of impermanence. So some, some of you have been practicing for a while, and this is in your first retreat, and, you know, when you've understood um, yeah, the basics of principles of mindfulness and presence, a possibility, all I'm interested in now, for a period, is impermanence. Just want to see change. Just want to see the rise and fall of things, the disappearing of things. So one goes through the day, noticing. One goes through the sitting, the walking, noticing. Change, change. What was here this morning is no longer here. So to see the guy, there's an teaching, there's a great emphasis on seeing on a very microscopic moment-to-moment level. I'm not necessarily sure that that's any more powerful in terms of transformation to see it on a microscopic level than it is to see it just on an everyday level. The successes, small successes and failures in one day, the small gains and losses, the pleasure and pain come and go. The Pali word language of the, the Buddha spoke, uh, not the language the Buddha spoke, uh, for impermanence, anicca, A N I C C A. And uh, another meaning, another translation of that word is uncertain, uncertain. There's impermanence and uncertainty. Tune into this, this aspect of life. It's incredibly uncertain where the next piece moment of praise and blame is going to be when and where and how it's going to be praise and blame success failure what will happen what will happen in the life of the body the next accident the next illness when death comes conditions by their very nature uh, are, are uncertain to tune the mind into this level this uncertainty of things We can contemplate impermanence in a very moment to moment level with, with some very key mindfulness and this everyday level I'm talking about, right? Every, every day, just seeing the coming and going, these things that we get concerned with. For me, what's really powerful by way of contemplating uh, impermanence actually to go to a whole other level level of, uh, could say, fastness. So, one of my teachers, Ajahn Tensari, used to say, contemplate infinity every day, contemplate the infinite every day. <laughs> the the uh, astronomers and cosmologists tell us the universe is uh, 14 billion years old. 14 million. And that will last at least as long, if not longer. <coughs> For just vast, unimaginable time and vast, unimaginable distances. And our lives are 60, 80, if you're lucky, 100, if you're really lucky, years. Tiny, tiny fragments. And in a way, our lives are in the context of that vastness, the vastness of space, and the vastness of time. And 
challenge to actually begin to look at your experience with this backdrop of a sense of vastness. So right now, here we are. There's the visual sense. There's the words, the sound. It's this moment. This moment is in the context of vast time. It's also in the context of our day. So this isn't more, but this is something to, to free us up. This moment, uh, we don't know what came before our life. We don't know, no matter who says what, we don't know what comes afterwards. This right now, the sound, the sight, those body sensations, it's all in the context of the vast, the vast unknown depth. So in a way, can we contemplate the infinite every day? Can we contemplate death every day? Not morbid. Maybe a little scary at first, but actually moving towards equanimity, moving towards freedom. Compassion, 
service, this, this movement outwards, for some people, this can be quite significant in, in, the, in the cultivation equity for some people. Sometimes uh, we are so caught up in my problems, understandably, my problems, my situation, my difficulties, then we engage in some service and movement of compassion and sometimes for some people the sense of my problems just decreases. And even the sense of isolation in my problems decreases. Can happen. The person sometimes says, where did they go? Very healing. These qualities, uh, loving kindness, compassion, extremely healing. Have that in the heart. So we heal ourselves as much by giving attention to ourselves and what's difficult in ourselves, as much as by developing what's lovely, as much as uh, putting the attention outwards in a beautiful way and caring for others. So I have a friend, a good friend, uh, since high school, uh, we've known each other, and he doesn't meditate at all. And he was, um, he was, he lives in London, he was on the, on the tube, uh, going to work, and in a little bit of a hurry. And there were some tourists there visiting him, and they had a map, as he got out of his station, and, uh, at his station and was hurrying to work, and they had a map, and they were obviously confused uh, where to go. They so just took a two minutes or whatever it was, and just got, got stuck with them with the map and just explained it's, it's here. Smallest gesture. And then he went on his way to work. And he said, then the oddest thing happened, I noticed this, this happiness. Wow, just a little bit of happiness. And to me, it, it was clearly related to that moment of kindness, that moment of the heart moving outward just in the smallest gesture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I hope that if we're meditating, if we're interested in, the, in these questions, that we're really, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. It shouldn't be a surprise. So I know I also remember for myself um, many, many years ago, um, it was in the beginning, uh, beginning uh, period, beginning years of uh, Psychotherapeutic intensive psychotherapeutic process I was uh, in, going through, and was really laboring under an illusion at that point, without actually realizing it. I was feeling very unhappy and very stuck, very stuck in what seemed to be such solid personality structures, such difficult uh, personality structures that were there. Uh, either from my family or my, my others. And they were just there and stuck, and I believed uh, that I needed to dissolve them, get rid of them, explode them, change them, whatever, in order to be happy, in order to grow and move on. I wasn't even completely conscious that I was uh, uh, making that connection between I need to get rid of this in order to be happy, but it was there very strongly under the surface. I cannot be happy until 
I've got rid of this until I've dissolved this personality structure. Structure is actually. And I was uh, really, really, at, at times with this, extremely unhappy and a, a real sense of pain and stuckness with it. Very painful. And one day when the pain was particularly strong, uh, I got up in the morning and I had a day off and I decided I'm just going to do metta all day. I'm just going to do this practice of loving kindness. And so I sat and I meditated and I did loving kindness. Then I had to had errands to run and things to people to see and things to buy. And I went through my day and just doing metta, went into the store to buy my groceries or whatever, metta to the shopkeeper, just metta to myself, to everyone I could think of, everyone I came across. And throughout the day I clung tenaciously, like like a drowning man to a, to a piece of wood in a stormy sea. I clung to the practice of metta over and over with the phrases and went and sat in the park and just did metta. After about three or four hours of this, something shifted and slowly, gradually came a happiness, really quite a strong happiness. I mean, I really had to you know, cling to it, but slowly came this happiness. And then a really, really, uh, really strong and profound happiness. And it made such a strong impression on me. Uh, to this day, I won't uh, forget it. It was so clear. Happiness is dependent on what qualities are in the mind and heart at the time. If there are lovely, beautiful qualities, that's where the happiness is. If they're not there, no happiness. Nothing had changed in terms of getting rid of these personality structures or, or so-called whatever solidity of that. All that had changed was a cultivation, a state of mind had changed, and then the happiness was there. And it was so black and white uh, that, that that made the insight so clear because the suffering was so strong and the happiness was so strong. And to this day, that uh, remains unshakably clear to me, that understanding, where does the happiness come from? Where do we get this source of happiness inside that's not so dependent on who's saying what or what's happening to us from outside? So this, this aspect, wisdom about what it is that leads to happiness, that's a huge aspect of wisdom. And what doesn't necessarily have to lead to suffering, someone praises or blames, someone blames us, there's a failure, a loss, pain even, does not have to lead to suffering. So these qualities uh, that build this uh, happiness that's less to slowly, gradually, and again, not, not linearly, over time, but very gradually, over the years really I'm talking about, over the years, that build this happiness inside, that develop a reservoir of happiness inside, not so dependent on the outer conditions. Loving kindness, compassion, service. Another quality, mudita. Mudita, another Pali word, M-U-D-I-T-A. Mudita. I'm going to translate it as spiritual joy. Spiritual joy. Which means a joy in life that's not so dependent, again, on what the self is getting. Who's saying what about me or what I'm getting. A spiritual joy doesn't have so much to do with the self. 
So one aspect of spiritual joy we could say is wonder. Wonder, that quality of just a human being wondering, marveling, <coughs> a human being in awe at life, at existence, at the universe. And Krishnamurti, uh, some of you will know him, uh, a very well-known Indian teacher, I think he died 10 or 15 years ago. He said something very powerful, I find it very powerful. Sometimes he had a way of putting things that were quite harsh, but uh, he had a saying, and it said, we come to the infinite well of life with a thimble, and so we go away thirsty. We come to the infinite well of life with a thimble, and so we go away thirsty. And so, it's quite a question to ask ourselves, how do we feed wonder? How do we allow a sense of wonder in life? It's a, it's a huge question. It's also a huge question to follow Krishnamurti's point. Why is it that we come with a thimble? Why is it that, in a way, we, we don't ask so much for ourselves from life? To me, that's actually a very deep question, because it's so common. We've, we very much limit what we ask from life. How does wonder get fed? How does it get squashed? One way that it gets squashed is too much concern with the self, too much concern with building up the self, self-inflating, self-importance, self-aggrandizement, or self-obsession, in, in, even, in, even in the, the best uh, possible motivation, so my, my process, my, my spiritual process, my therapeutic process can, can, I'm not saying it always does, but sometimes does become just another manifestation of self-obsession. When there's too much self-concern, too much self-obsession, the, the receptivity of the being gets shrunk, gets shrunk. Me and my concerns and my process and my status and all of that, too much of that and our receptivity, our very awareness gets shrunk and the wonder goes with it. What's the place of our relationship with nature in practice, in cultivating wonder? Or art, music? You know, certainly there's a lot of uh, art and music or whatever that's just actually about distraction and uh, entertainment or whatever, but there's a lot, of, a lot of things that touch the being very profoundly make something come alive in the being that opens this sense of receptivity of wonder. And to me, that's a huge part of practice, feeding that wonder. So last night in the opening talk, just talk briefly about where, where does our uh, intentionality go? Why is it that we come with a thimble? These are difficult questions, and sometimes just hearing these questions doesn't, you know, it can be uncomfortable or even a bit sad if we, if we truly reflect on this. Oftentimes, it, uh, what's it, our intentionality has just gone to being a bit more comfortable, things just being a bit more convenient, a bit more sense pleasure, a bit more secure. Very normal, very human, 
the more we do that, the less the wonder. And it's so almost insidious the way it happens. If there is this sense of mudita, of spiritual joy, of wonder, then the ups and downs, this praise and blame and all that, they're kind of small change in life. Small fry. The vicissitudes, the the coming and going of all that, in relation to a sense of vastness, of mystery, it's doesn't matter that much. Can be, can be, that the sense of wonder uh, goes so deep that even death is kind of okay because we have a sense that we've really drunk deeply from life. Really lived and not gone through this life and not just a basic practice of showing up on the cushion for the walking meditation. The calmness, the collectedness itself that brings uh, brings steadiness. The contemplation of impermanence. The building of the happiness inside uh, metta, compassion, uh, uh, mudita, spiritual joy. Building this happiness. All this uh, feeds equanimity. What about wisdom? What about wisdom? So these eight worldly conditions, can we look into them and ask, what am I making to matter? What am I making to seem so important? Are they really as real even as they seem to be? Sometimes things seem very important to us and a little time goes by and they don't seem important at all. But to really notice that. It may, it may be a matter of uh, days or months or years even. So if I think back on my life, how important it was to me when I was uh, much younger uh, playing, playing football. And I, I played football all the time and I was in teams and this and that. And, and my happiness was so dependent on how well I played or not, you know, if I didn't play well or scored a goal or whatever it was. It, it seems, you know, where's it gone? A little while later, uh, you know, I went to one of these very academic institutions and sort of grinding, grinding people through and all the emphasis there was on how well one did academically and then the sense of happiness gets attached to that kind of performance. And then that goes, I, you know, a few years later that didn't matter at all. If it really mattered, it would matter, full stop. So to track this coming and going of what's so important, or what's so exciting, or fearful, something's coming up and it's going to be fantastic, just notice, okay, I'm feeling that excitement, track it through. Do I remain, does it remain as fantastic as it was going to be? Dalai Lama says, don't get excited about anything. (laughs) Don't get excited about it. Or with fear, something's going to be terrible. Oh my God, this thing coming up, you know. Just see, okay, this is the fear. How is it? Was it really as bad? Usually things are not as bad as they we think they're going to be and also not as good as we think they're going to be. How much, another question, how much are we prey to victims of... Uh, 
influences from society with all of this. You know, uh, what our status is, what our role is, what car we drive, all of that. Even if we're very involved in these kind of uh, uh, scenes, dharma scene, etc. Enormous pull, we're subject to so much advertising and, and this and that. I was teaching a retreat somewhere else a little while ago and uh, was in a group interview and a woman had been devoting, uh, I think, t- two years of her life to Dharma stuff. She'd been to India a lot and was traveling, basically going from one retreat to another, spending a lot of time managing retreats and meditating. And the first thing she talked about was she wanted to talk about right speech and honesty. And we, we engaged in a, in a dialogue uh, about her thoughts about right speech and where she, how she was practicing with that and her co- absolute uh, commitment to honesty and kindness in her speech and really so much uh, uh, integrity of, of, of application there and presence. It was beautiful. And then she said, there's, there's another thing. I'm just I'm feeling, I'm feeling kind of bad about myself. I'm feeling a bit worthless. And she said, you know, I've been basically just doing Dharma stuff for two years. I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't have a job, I'm not making any money, and I just think, you know, I'm not really doing anything valuable. Uh, and I just had to remind her, look what she just said, that how rare that level of uh, commitment to, to uh, beautiful speech. And how that compared with uh, having some status of some job or making money, how how we value to just based on the societal influences. Don't underestimate the power of this, that the, the the power of what we're subject to in in this in this culture, and that's actually it's a worldwide thing now. Uh, I don't know if just sitting on the cushion alone is enough to cut it. Uh, I think we need each other. We need sangha. We need like-minded people to really, you know, when we're struggling under the weight of uh, something that seems so important, to ask someone we trust, a friend, a good friend, teacher, someone, whoever, what am I not seeing here? What, show me what I'm not seeing. Like this woman, she just was not seeing how she had just completely devalued something and valued something else. So these worldly conditions are empty, 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 when we look at them. They are also, if we look, very dependent, how we feel about them, how much they register, is very dependent on our uh, mind state at the time, our mood at the time, our personal circumstances. So, um, really stupid example, but... Uh, you've just bought a new um, uh, what's a good car? Jaguar, Ferrari, whatever it is. And you're driving it home, and you get in a car crash, uh, and you're really annoyed. <laughs> what happens if that same day you'd also it's a stupid car? If you'd also just uh, proposed or been proposed to by the uh, man, woman of your dreams, and they'd said yes, and you're just this fantastic thing has just happened, and 
here you are driving a new car, and then you have a crash. Different impact. Stupid example, I never had. What happens if you hadn't been engaged that day, but you had been fired from your job unexpectedly, and then you're driving? Double the impact. What happens if the person most precious in the world to you, your child, your spouse, whoever it is, your partner, your best friend, had just you just learned that they had a terminal illness, a diagnosis of uh, terminal cancer or something, and then you crash your car. Who cares? Who cares? These things are completely dependent, completely relative on uh, to our state of mind. In themselves, they don't have any power. They don't have any inherent power, praise, blame, success, failure, gain, loss, all the rest of it. Don't have any power inherently to uh, affect us even. So it could say, uh, it's empty. Okay, but what about pain and pleasure? What about pain and pleasure? I mean, pain is just pain, and pleasure is just pleasure. But meditatively speaking, if we look into this a bit more carefully, a bit more investigatively, what we notice is that, say there's pain in the body, I'm sitting there's a pain in the knee, pain in the back. The degree of the pain is dependent on my reaction to it. The degree of the pain is dependent on my reaction to it. If I am aversive to that pain and push it away and want to get rid of it, want it to go away, it has the tendency to actually build, build the intensity of the pain. Pain and pleasure are intuitive. It's quite remarkable. So again, if you've been practicing for a while and you're quite comfortable with mindfulness and, and all that, just to begin to actually explore this. How is pain and pleasure dependent on the reaction? Dependent on the response to it? Very counterintuitive. Some very uh, profound wisdom to be discovered there. Am I making things? Am I making things with my reaction? I'm making things. So there's a, a Tibetan teacher, and someone asked him, what's, what's equanimity? And he said, equanimity is being equally near all things. Which is a very, very beautiful way of putting it. Being equally near all things. And... Again, we might take that and we might practice with that. What would that mean? What would it mean, or to sit in practice, what would it mean to not put any pressure on the self? Not put any pressure on things to be different, to be more, to be less. Not even worrying about how mindful we are. There's just some presence there. And the the agenda is no pressure. No pressure on self to be more, better, different, less... No pressure on the world, no pressure on things, inner or outer. No pressure. What happens? 
So equally near all things, very beautiful this, this definition. At one level, very beautiful. But, to be equally near all things means that I'm not pushing away what I don't like, what's difficult and unpleasant, and I'm not pulling towards me what's pleasant. The push and the pull have died down. Have died down through mindfulness or deliberately letting them die down. Something very remarkable uh, can be seen here. As the push and the pull, of, as the reactivity to experience dies down, our perceptions actually begin to change. Our perceptions of what is happening begin to change. The push and the pull, of our push and pull to experience influences perception. Sometimes what, what can happen is when the push and pull dies down, experience itself begins to fade. Pain, pleasure, it all begins to fade and just kind of become, uh, either fade completely or just become very, uh, very sparse. There's almost nothing happening, just a little flickering of experience in a space of, of awareness. Can do, can do. And there's not there's really nothing happening. There are no objects even per se. When there is no push pull, when the push pull has become very quiet. No objects, no problem. No objects, no problem. In a way, that's a whole other uh, perhaps level of meaning because we usually take equanimity to mean when something difficult or fantastic is going on then we're steady with it as it goes really into the depth it's almost uh, it takes on a, a, a whole different meaning there's nothing happening there's nothing really to be equanimous about in relation to deep equanimity uh, has a real beauty in it has a real beauty in it even even relatively superficial equanimity has some beauty but this, this level of equanimity really has a profound beauty in it something that really touches the being very deeply uh, it's also deeply nourishing deeply nourishing so I think long term to kind of be with our experience and just relax the reactivity and then be in that space where we're not so much struggling with what's going on, where we're not trying to fix everything or make everything different. And there's just this dying down of the push and the pull. Long-term nourishment for the being. And it has love in it. That dying down of the push and pull is automatically, naturally, organically imbued with a sense of love, non-separation. So not at all, uh, especially on the first night of a retreat when you hear something like that, not at all to set up uh, uh, experience. I want that, I'll grab that, nothing else matters, where am I now, I'm, you know, uh, I'm nowhere near that. You know, not to set that up. The experience actually is not the important thing. 
What's important through this is the understanding. Always, always understanding more important than the experience. Experience very lovely. Understanding much more important, much more transformative. And what's the understanding from this when we move into a less reactive mode? Less push and pull. What's the understanding? We begin to understand what we could say the immeasurability of all things. The immeasurability of all things. How a thing is, how strong it is, how intense it is, how much of a big deal it is, how it is, depends on the push and the pull, how much of a push and the pull there is. In itself, it's it's nothing, it's not any way. So the only way a thing really is, is immeasurable. All things, so-called inner, so-called outer. Begin to know this, and the knowing moves from a sort of intellectual level down into the heart, into the body, into the cells. And in a way that's the... uh, the most, the deepest kind of uh, uh, nourishment of equanimity. Because then things that we usually, uh, we don't believe so much in the inherent uh, power of things or the inherent way things are. We don't believe so much in uh, the necessity of them making us wobble, making us keel over. We taste something about the immeasurability of things and there's a real freedom in that. And so not to make too much out of any experiences but just that understanding and moving towards that understanding is very accessible for us, very accessible, very possible for all of us. So all these different, just mentioned some of the ways tonight that uh, equanimity gets gets. Uh, nourished, gets nurtured in the being. Should we have a couple of quiet minutes together? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.